here's Jordan. This is the Capital City Podcast. Our story today begins in famine. We're in the city of Bethlehem. In Hebrew, Bethlehem awkwardly and ironically means the house of bread. And this is ironic because in the beginning of our story, there is no bread. So the house of bread has no bread. It's not like today where there are grocery stores and planes, and if food runs out in one part of the world, we hardly notice because they just fly it in from somewhere else. So there's a family, Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, and they're out of food. There's no bread. And they start asking around, where is the growing good? Where is their food? And they must think, when they hear the answer, they must think, are you kidding me? Because where the growing was good was in Moab. Now, Moab was a rotten place. Its origin story is literally an incest. And there were hundreds and hundreds of years, even a thousand years, of racial hatred between the Israelites and the Moabites. Moab actually uh, was, was founded by somebody named Moab, and he was uh, the son of Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham, and uh, we won't go into the whole story, but at one point, Lot and his family had to flee Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that, were, that God was about to destroy. And so Lot is hiding out up in the mountains after the destruction of the city, and for their own safety, they stay up in the mountains. And Lot's daughters were of childbearing age, and they were frustrated that they couldn't marry and have children the normal way. But they decided to take time into their own hands, and they said, the time is now for us to have kids. But the only man around was their father. So essentially, you can read this in Genesis 19. This is in the Bible, even though it's kind of raw. Uh, essentially, they drugged their father in order to conceive children by their father. Uh, they had two kids. Each of them had one. One was named Moab. The other was named Ammon. And then those kids went off to create their own cities and lives and cultures and tribes. And then they ended up having tons of offspring over hundreds and thousands, you know, thousands of years. And the one group was called the Moabites after Moab. The other were called the Ammonites. And they and the Israelites hated each other. Okay, so this is Moab. It's just a disgusting, disgraceful place born in incest. They worshipped a god called Chemosh. And Chemosh is, of course, not just a different name for Yahweh. He was a, an idol, and he delighted in child sacrifice. Almost all of Israel's neighbors practiced child sacrifice, and it was the one thing, if you could say there's one thing in the Old Testament that God absolutely hates, it's child sacrifice. He cannot stand it, and he will root out an entire people group just to get rid of child sacrifice from the land. And this is what was going on in Moab. He was born in incest. They practiced uh, or at least the, the religious leaders practiced child sacrifice. And Elimelech and Naomi and their kids must be thinking, we have to go there? I mean, wh where is God? Elimelech, his name literally means my God is king. So El means God, E means mine, Elimelech means king. So my God is king. How embarrassing, right? That now you have to flee your own land where your God is apparently king and you have to go to Moab where this uh, incest and human sacrifice are their story. Where is God in that? But as they're thinking, they think, well, there's, there's no bread, and we have to eat. So we go to Moab. So they go, and they begin to make a life, but right as they start their lives in Moab, Elimelech, the, the main you know, father of the family, dies. 
So Naomi, his wife, is now a widow, which in the ancient world is a really dangerous spot to be in. But she still has her sons, so she's, she's okay. She's, she's taken care of. She still has her sons. And the sons are of marrying age. They're probably taking over in all the farming duties. And they marry local women, Moabites. One of those women, named, interestingly enough, Orpah. Does anybody know anybody named Orpah? You actually all do. The most famous and wealthy woman in the entire world is actually named Orpah Winfrey. But nobody could pronounce that right when she was a child, and they called her Oprah instead. But Oprah Winfrey's real name is Orpah. Some people have this story about the hospital getting it wrong in the transcript. That's wrong. They got it right. Her name is Orpah Winfrey. She may have changed it later when she became rich and famous. Uh, but she was born Orpah Winfrey. But now, of course, everyone knows her as Oprah. So, interesting story. Orpah has a namesake today. But the other would go on to be the most famous woman in the entire Old Testament. If it weren't for Mary in the New, I bet she'd be the most famous woman in the entire Bible. And what's crazy about this is that she was not even Jewish. Her name was Ruth. But sadly, right as you think, you know, Elimelech has died, but he's got these two sons, and they marry, so you think maybe finally they can have some restoration. They can grow bread in this awful pagan land, but at least they can have something. But Elimelech's sons followed their father into an early death, and they died before Orpah and Ruth had any children. So now you have one Moabite woman in her late Middle Ages and two Moabite women, or did I say, sorry, one Israelite woman and two Moabite women who were all widowed and none of them had any sons. In that era, this is like a tragedy writ large. I mean, to have three women, all widowed, no sons. I mean, today, that's a different story. It'd be a really sad thing to go through. But to not have sons today doesn't, doesn't mean that. But back then, that was like the tragedy upon tragedies was to not have a son. I was trying to think of a, something similar today, and I think it'd be something like, imagine there were no social net, no sort of safety net at all in the social system. It would be like having cancer without any health insurance, and there was absolutely no system that would help you out at all. Like having cancer without health insurance. Women, sadly, this is just how it was then, and actually still in, in, in many parts today in the Middle East, women were seen as a, a sort of it's too strong to say property, but something like that, sort of attack on to the life of a man. And the women weren't aware. They weren't like, this is a feminist issue. That's just, that's just how life was, and everyone accepted it. Uh, and strangely, in much of the Semitic Arab world today, it's not that different. I lived in Spain, which is not part of that world. I lived in northern Spain, which uh, if you go to southern Spain, you can almost swim across the Mediterranean Sea at a point to get to Morocco. It's nine, I think seven or nine miles at a point. It's very close. Not that I could swim that far. Some people could swim that far, okay? <laughs> so there are really cheap flights from anywhere in Spain to anywhere in North Africa because it's right there. It'd be like flying to Chicago. And uh, it was a common trip for people to make. I had a number of friends that were going to go over the weekend to Marrakech, Morocco. I don't know if that's how we say it in English. They say Marrakech. I don't even know how we say it. Uh, Marrakech, Marrakech. And they were going to go, and I wasn't able to go, but I certainly heard this story later. So my good friend and this group of foreign students went to Marrakech for the weekend. Uh, there was a girl in the group who was Norwegian, and 
I don't know, probably about five foot ten, six foot tall, which is pretty tall, especially in the Arab world. And, you know, blonde hair, the rest of it, she, she stood out, right? People saw her in, in the middle of Morocco. And a wealthy businessman came up, the same age as my friends, probably mid-twenties, and went to who he assumed was the alpha of the group and offered him a half a dozen camels and a laptop for her hand in marriage. <laughs> half a dozen camels, or maybe it was a dozen camels, I forget. She, she asked a Moroccan later, and it, it turned out to be quite the bride price, uh, whatever she was offered. And she's like, well, yeah, I'd hope so. Um, and what's interesting is the man, I mean, to us, this is like the most offensive thing on the planet, right? But the man meant no disrespect at all. It's just, that's just how it works there. And so some parts of the world have not changed much at all from the days when, when women were seen as almost a trading piece. Um, so without a man, you were in deep trouble. It's just how the world worked then and still much of it now. And Naomi knew this. She knew that without husbands, without some sort of protector, that Ruth and Orpah would likely soon end up uh, abused, uh, forced into prostitution, slavery, you name it. Um, you needed a protector, you needed a redeemer, or you were at the mercies of a sinful world. So now Naomi is at the bottom of society. She's a lonely widow, childless, and she has nothing to her name. A lot of people have described Ruth, who we haven't really talked much about yet, but they describe her as a sort of female Abraham character, and actually, I'd say more honorable in almost every way than Abraham. But if she is a female Abraham, then Naomi here, the mother, is kind of like Job. She has lost everything. And to top it all off, her family line has dried up. It's, her family line is dead, which is the ultimate tragedy in the Hebrew story. But God hears his people in this ultimate tragedy. He answers the fatherless, the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the homeless. And God has a knack of turning tragedy into triumph for those who believe in his people. So at the bottom of their tragedy, a ray of hope enters their story. They hear a report that Yahweh, that God, has visited his land, Bethlehem, the house of bread, and that he's restored it, that he's blessed the land, and that there's now again bread in Bethlehem, where Naomi is from. The house of bread that ran out of bread now <clears throat> has bread again. I keep seeing these lines in my head, like Jesus is the bread of life. God gives manna in the wilderness. God is often compared to a bread provider, bread winner, bread giver to his people. So in Naomi and, and Ruth and Orpah's wilderness, with no option, Naomi hears this good news that there's once again bread. So she thinks maybe she'll live on the kindness of others. You know, she can go back home. Maybe a distant relative will take care of her. But not these Moabite girls. They had better options. Because she knew it didn't make sense. Ruth and Orpah still had family. They still had tribes. They still had uh, kin in Moab. So she says to Ruth and Orpah, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, what's really fascinating here is that she says, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. All throughout the Old Testament, you see, go back to your father's home. The father is the one who owns the home. 
So when they say go back to your mother's home, if you look deeper into those passages, it's always about courtship. So in ancient Semitic society, the mothers would arrange basically who did the marrying and who married whom. Uh, This can make sense. The men were maybe busy working. The women were too, but the women got to work together. So there's just a lot more conversation, a lot more community making happening. I think it's still like this today. Women are better community makers than men. Um, And in ancient Semitic society, it was the women who largely did a lot of the matchmaking. So she says, go back to your mother's home that you might find rest in the home of another husband. Go back, remarry. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all wept aloud. And, said, and, and, and the daughter said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Interesting that she calls them my daughters there. So in an economy where every ounce of influence and power, and power depended on men, she knew she had nothing for them. So then she makes this long speech about how she has nothing to offer, she has no more sons left to give, and that culture, if you were widowed, it was understood that the next youngest brother of your dead husband would marry you. Um, So like if I died before Aubrey had kids, if I had a younger brother, it would be his responsibility to then marry Aubrey and keep the family line going. Um, Luckily, we don't have that problem. So she makes this long speech about how there's no more sons in her line to to fix this problem. And Orpah understands. She agrees. She kisses Naomi goodbye, and we can assume that she goes back to her mother's or father's house. And from there, we lose that thread of the story. Not until the 1950s, when Oprah is born, do we have a continuation of that story. (laughs) Just kidding. No, we lose the thread of Orpah's story. We don't know what happened, how she fared, if she married, if she had kids. We don't know. And a lot of writers throughout history have actually been really rude, really critical of Orpah. They call it a lack of faith, they call it sin, whatever. Uh, but she did exactly what was asked of her. Ruth said, or Naomi said, go back to your people, go back to your, your tribe, and that's exactly what she did. I'm sure it's what her father and mother would have wanted for her to come back in and take another stab at life. So she goes back, doesn't seem like sin. She's not a bad guy, she's not an antagonist. But Ruth wouldn't do that. It says Ruth clung to Naomi. This word to cling in in Hebrew, the the choice there, is it's almost the closest thing. They don't have a word for conversion. Conversion is a very like post-enlightenment understanding. But the idea of forgetting everything that's behind you and clinging on to what's new is the closest thing that they have to conversion. And it says Ruth wouldn't go back. She clung to Naomi. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law, Orpah, is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Then Ruth says some of the most beautiful and most poetic words in Scripture. She says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, Deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So Ruth is looking at two options. She can either go back home to Moab and take another chance. She's probably, given the story, she's probably 25 to 30 years old. She's got plenty of time to marry and have a child. Or there's this older widow who's from a foreign place, who has maybe about 10 years left of life. People didn't live as long back then. She could follow her back into a land, Israel, that hates her people, 
where she'd face oppression, racism, possibly even extortion, or forced prostitution if she's not protected by some kind of a man. She has no resources and no ancestral home to belong to. But Ruth decided to take a God-sized risk. She took a risk like Abraham, but it was much greater than the risk that Abraham took because Abraham had all this stuff going into it. Uh, Ruth had no promise from God. She had no divine blessing. She had no spouse, no house or belongings, and no cast of friends to help her. And she gave up the chance to marry another man of her own tribe to help an old widow. Orpah chose to do the wise thing for herself, but Ruth chose to care for the widow and to care for the aged. She chose to throw her lot in with the least of these and say, come what may. And you'd think, you know, well, maybe she'd just go to Bethlehem for five or ten years until Naomi passes of natural causes, and then she'd go back to Moab. But that's not what Ruth says. She says, where you die, I will die. She says, I will make my grave with you and be in your, your family plot, essentially. Now, today we don't fear these things, but one of the greatest fears for a widow in the ancient world was not being properly cared for while dying. To be dying, to have no way of gaining any resources. They had no social net, no system at all to help. And so if you didn't have family, you were just slowly going to become homeless and, and starve. But Ruth assured Naomi, you will not be homeless, you won't suffer alone. Orpah was wise in the world's eyes, but Ruth was a hero in God's eyes. And honestly, I kind of identify with Orpah. I think Westerners, often Westerners, identify with Orpah. You know, always trying to be wise, always measuring future possibilities, cost-benefit analysis, uh, always trying to end up safe and secure by your own power. And if a couple uh, of people were to come into me today, come, come to my you know, office and say, you know, what, what should we do in this troubled situation? Most of the counsel that I would give would probably lean in a more Orpah-like direction. But I aspire to be like Ruth. You know, imagine wagering your whole future on caring for the least of these in throwing your lot in with the least fortunate, with the poor, and possibly ending up an outsider and a foreigner who's disgraced. Like, this is her, this is her choice. Wow, you know, it's, it's how Ruth became the most famous person, the most famous woman in the Old Testament. And I think it's why she gets to be the hero, why people like Orpah just, you know, get to have normal, mild successes in life. You know, when Jesus called his disciples, he was also looking for this Ruth-like clinging, right? His disciples were literally holding nets. They were holding stuff. And Jesus called them. I, I would love to hear how long the command was to follow him. If it was literally just two words or like a paragraph. But it says the disciples just dropped their stuff and went with him. Ruth shows us what it looks like to become sold out for God. You know, a lot of people miss this, but Ruth actually became a believer in Yahweh She's one of the first converts. She, she actually swears by Yahweh. There's this curse formula in the Old Testament. She says, may the Lord, and this is a tragedy of translation. Whenever you see the Lord, just think Yahweh. That's what, that's what is going on there. Uh, there's an ancient tradition to call him the Lord instead of Yahweh because the Jews never wanted to write his name for fear of misusing it. But he has a name and he calls himself that so we can call him Yahweh when it's respectful. 
She says, may Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. It's kind of calling down a curse on yourself. Like, if I break this promise, let Yahweh do his worst, because I will keep this promise. So in those years she'd spent with Naomi, she came to believe in Yahweh and, and reject her own god, Chemosh. Yahweh had gotten her in his grip. She wanted to go to Yahweh's land, live by his law, and take care of this widow who had introduced her to Yahweh. Ruth shows us what it means to begin anew your life, what it means to bet big on God. Can you imagine what her Moabite village thought of her when she made this call? Here Ruth loses her husband, who was you know, questionable to begin with because he was an Israelite, and then now she's just going to leave as a widow back to Israel. Instead, she goes all in, she put all of her chips on the table and followed Yahweh, it doesn't make sense to the world. I'm sure it didn't make sense in Moab. But God calls us to follow him without looking back. He calls us to put our hand to the plow and not question our own decisions. If you're on that cusp, if your life is rocked with tragedy, and you could fall on your, like you could kind of fall back on your own old ways, you could go back to the way things used to be, or you could throw your lot in with God, put all your chips on the table, I say go for it. I say do it. Believe in God and follow him. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Care for the weak, not yourself. And just see what God does with that. That's a challenge. See what God does if you put all your chips on the table. God has a knack for turning tragedy into triumph. And our tragedies today are different. You, you, you won't hear people wailing about these things quite in the same way. We have different kinds of famine. We have emotional famines when job opportunities dry up, or when rent or the mortgage is hard to pay. We have medical issues. Lord, we have medical issues, right? The death of loved ones, unrelenting sickness, or just, I think this is growing in our society, the sickening sense of injustice. But famine and cracked soil and devastation are the place where God does some of his most unbelievable work. Famine is where God does his best work. I mean, the, the, the desert is where he flows with rivers of living water. It's famine where all the great stories start. Famine is what begets the Abraham story. It, 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 gives, uh, it opens up the Ruth story. The desert is where the Israelites have to go before they get to the promised land. The desert is where Jesus is sent before he's beginning his ministry. So when you're in a famine, you will despair some. I know I have. It's not hard to. But lean heavy on God, pray to him, cry out to him, and know that famine is that rocky soil from which he will grow a garden later. I guess rocky soil isn't good for a garden, so scratch the metaphor, but famine is this dry land that he will then cure to grow a garden. He doesn't make it easy, and sometimes there's this long fog to go through, but the fog clears to a beautiful dawn. So I don't know your tragedy. I'm pretty sure you all have one, but I don't know it. Maybe some of you here don't know God, like Ruth originally didn't. Maybe you've been looking to idols that are only half measures or, frankly, evil. Or maybe you know God, but you just don't know him well, and tragedy has struck. And if you're on that precipice of either following him or falling back into your old ways, I would encourage you to follow God and 
I know that people come to this spot in their life and they're like, but how do I start? You know, what, what does it look like to actually start that journey? How do I, do I ease into it? Do I read some book? Or like, who do, I, who do I ask? And the answer, I think Ruth has it here, is like, just, it's go all in. If you're going to start following God, go all, do it all. Every idea you have, go for it. Not like unwise ideas, but in terms of pursuing after God, just go for it. Go all in. Leave your former life, leave the idols, leave the reputation, leave the history behind, all of it. Put, go all in, put all of your chips on God. Follow him without looking back. That's sort of the, the universal way that God has people renounce their former life and then follow him. Jesus says, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. You don't know the ending of what that might bring, and neither did Ruth, frankly. There's a lot of fog in, in the windshield, um, but if you trust God, it's amazing to see how he clears it. And in this, uh, in this trust that Ruth has, God blesses her, and in fact, he blesses the whole world. We'll have to wait to get the full rest of the story, but it's really cool to see what Ruth's story means, not only for Israel, but all of us here today. The book of Ruth is about redeemers. It's about redemption. So Naomi and all, and all of the women in this story have lost their husbands, but then Ruth redeems Naomi. Ruth, in a sense, redeems Naomi's old age. She redeems her and says, you will not die alone. You will not rot into homelessness and uh, oppression. I will be there. I will make sure that you are buried and cared for, which is arguably the most important thing in ancient society. Later, which Joshua is going to preach on next week, Ruth herself was redeemed by somebody else, Boaz. And then overall, God redeemed all of Israel through this whole story, because we'll learn more about this later, but, but Boaz, who, who Ruth will meet next week, was the son of a prostitute. A lot of people don't know this. Boaz is the son of a prostitute, Rahab, and Ruth is this daughter of a pagan child-sacrificing tribe, a Moabite, and when she would have gone to Israel, she wouldn't have even been allowed close to sort of the predecessor to the temple. She wouldn't have been allowed close to the holy places because she was a Moabite. She was this product of this awful, you know, filthy tribe in their mind's eye. But this son of a prostitute and this daughter of Moabites would marry, and eventually, three or four generations later, there would be a runt of impressive, or a litter of impressive boys, but the runt, the supposedly not so impressive uh, of these, would grow up to be King David. And between him and Solomon, they built the very temple itself. And I just think, here's Ruth, who's not even allowed near the holy place, and her own great-grandson would build the temple. And many generations later, again in the city of Bethlehem, a little baby would be born. It's like, it seems too warm to be telling this story, right? A little baby would be born. It would be an illegitimate pregnancy, pregnancy, as it was thought, and this baby would be placed in an animal's feeding trough. He would be a descendant of heroes like King David and noble Jews, but also a descendant of pagans, prostitutes, Gentiles, of Ruth and of Boaz, of Joseph and Mary, and his own ancestors couldn't even enter the temple, but he himself would become the very temple of God. And he, as the temple, would redeem all of us who believe in him. Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, not more than a few hundred steps from where all the scenes in this book of Ruth take place. 
Jesus would have been born. I mean, you could see where Jesus, I mean, this is 200 people lived there, the 200 ancestral homes max in this village. So where Jesus was born hundreds of years later was only a few hundred steps from where the entire book of Ruth takes place. If you're on the cusp of believing in God, dive in. Don't wait. Don't go back to Moab. God uses broken vessels, disgraced backgrounds, and desert soil to build his beautiful garden and tall cathedrals. Throw your lot in with Jesus. Take the risk of redeeming others and let God redeem you. Jesus came as our redeemer. Serve him even if it costs you, even if it seems unwise and if the world looks upon you as if you're a little strange. They might mistreat you or think you unwise, but you'd be in good company if it, if it thinks so. Follow Jesus, serve the poor, and preach the good news. Amen. This is a project of Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Mm-hmm.